it's been an exciting month or so since we've, you know, that we've been running through the book of Genesis. This morning, we do arrive at the final movement of these opening chapters, the end of this story um, that began with the creation of the world and the creation and fall of Adam and Eve, um, and then their exile from the garden. Now, the impact of those events of Genesis chapter 3, they are, they are immediately felt for us here in Genesis chapter 4. Um, as we read, you might have noticed that some of the pattern that was established in chapter 3 uh, is repeated here with the sin and then God coming and speaking his judgments and his judgments containing both a curse and then some silver linings that are a little more difficult to see and to unravel here. The words that are spoken in the garden concerning this curse and concerning the future of, of humanity, um, as God speaks, we see more clarity, more precision given to some of the things said in chapter 3 regarding uh, the hostility or the enmity that is placed between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. We find in our story today um, a tragic tale, quite obviously, of of uh, the first murder, one brother rising up against another. And as we look at it today, we're not going to really belabor too much here in the introduction because, frankly, for, for the sake of time, we want to we get down to business pretty, pretty quickly. Uh, but I do want us to have a couple of things working in mind as we, as we retell the story and walk through it. I do want us to consider the impact that this, uh, that this murder has, not just for this family, but for the entire human family. Keep in mind some of those terms from Genesis chapter 3 verses 15 and 16 that when the woman is or that when the serpent is cursed by God he God tells the serpent that enmity will be placed between his offspring and the offspring of uh, the offspring of the woman and that one of those offspring will crush the serpent's head though he will bruise um, that offspring's heel what we see almost immediately in the second story more detail regarding what that means, what that means for all of humanity, or what it means for, uh, for the future of redemption, and the way for us as God's people to go about and live, how we are to regard our brothers and sisters in the Lord, and the relationship that we have to the rest of the outside world. Who these different groups are, the nature of their enmity, what we can expect for the sake of humanity in the future, all that is wrapped up here in Genesis chapter 4 that we're going to dive into now under three headings, the first of which is point number one, uh, the first murder. First murder. As we walk through the, the text today, hopefully this is one that is, that is familiar to all of us. Um, we've likely heard this in, in Sunday school if you've been in the church for some time. And it's uh, some of the details, at least the basic outline of the details, that first part, are clear for all. After the fall, after Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden, we hear the, the record of, uh, of the birth of Cain and his, brother, and his brother Abel. A few details regarding these two brothers are given right away that are important for us uh, to take note of. This first, this first child, this elder son, Cain, we're told right away that he's someone who's, he's a worker of the ground. That's very, very important. It's as though in our story, God has given us another gardener as Adam was, was before him. 
Now his name translated too might literally mean like, you know, like Smith or someone who works, works from the earth, is able to take the earth and, uh, and shape it in the way, that he, the way that he desires. He's a man very clearly like all men. He's, he's created by God. He's birthed to take dominion over the earth. And that's going to have great importance as we move on in the story. Well, that's the first brother that's born. The second brother is, is Abel. Now, we don't know much about Abel other than he's a shepherd. And we, and we don't get a lot of detail from his name other than this, that his name Abel is the same root word used in places like Ecclesiastes for hevel, meaning the wind or vanity as it's translated in English, meaning... Uh, we get a little bit. We get a little bit of foreshadowing here, just in the introduction of Abel, of what's going to happen to him. That he will come and he's going to go and he's going to fade, well, just like the wind, and it won't make sense. It will be this uh, this act of violence, vanity or hevel. These two brothers, after they're born, we we are told that they bring forth, or sorry, they bring forth offerings to God according to their manner of work. Um, so Cain brings an offering of the fruits of the ground. And Abel brings an offering of the sheep of his, of his flock. And what we're told, and we'll get into some of the details of why this is later, but what we're told just on the surface is that God has regard for the offering of Abel, the younger brother, but he has no regard for the offering that is brought by Cain. And very clearly, if you're an older brother, a, an older accomplished um, brother, this, causes, this will cause you some distress. All signs early on in this passage point to the reality of Cain being this great and preferred son, that he has all this potential in him, revealed both his name, what Eve pronounces over him, uh, and, his, and his vocation. By, very, by the very nature of being the firstborn child in, in this society, that carries extreme significance. Um. So much so that Eve will say that, will proclaim and sing that the Lord has given to me, uh, the Lord has given him to me as a, as a son. And very clearly, once again, those types of tasks he's supposed to take up to, fulfill, like, uh, to, to subdue the earth, to take dominion over it, those are all original intentions for how man was created. He has the potential for great culture making. <laughs> He has the potential to take the earth and bend it uh, to, his, to his will. You'll find even in later in the genealogies that are discussed about him, he raises a city, and, and from his offspring come, come wonderful things produced in the world for the first time, things like music or the fashioning of tools and weapons. He had all the makings of greatness. And instead, in the very beginning of our passage, he's overlooked by his God. And this is relatable, obviously, to anyone who's thought that they've been owed a little bit of something. Um, anyone who thinks that their credentials or their status has, has given them a right to earn something, whether that be the right promotion at work or getting picked for the team uh, or having your work uh, or like your schoolwork acknowledged and credited. Anyone who's coming with accolades and then gets overlooked you know the kind of disappointment and the frustration that Cain would have obviously felt um, when he brings his offering and God prefers his, his younger brothers. And even though he's overlooked, 
Well, I'm sorry, because he's overlooked, the text tells us that he ends up in great anger. What's amazing, though, is that even in the midst of his anger, this family still seems to have a good, unique relationship with God. God comes to him, and he offers words of comfort to Abel in verses um, in verses 6 and 7. He asks him, you know, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? He's, he's expressing sincere concern for, for this man, and he, he cares for that which ails him. He gives him some advice, telling, or, or in, not just advice, but some instructions, uh, telling him to not allow his sin to consume him, for it will, but to master it, to conquer it. Sin is crouching at the door, he is warned. He must take control of himself and do well to please God. He's given a sincere and a true opportunity to avert the great sin that he is about to commit. And nevertheless, despite God's direct warnings and direct instruction to him, as we saw in, verse, in verses 8 and 9, Cain like the serpent before him, deceives his brother. There's a little omission in the text. Uh, if you have like an ESV or other more modern translations, they'll have a little a footnote there that many of the translations says that um, there in verse 8, that when Cain spoke to his brother Abel, that he, told, uh, or that he told him, let's go out to the field. That is likely, um, in my opinion, part of the original text here. It's there because of some of the variations in the copies of manuscripts. But he, he deceives his brother takes him out to the field, and it's in that field that he commits this first murder. He yields to his anger and allows sin to blossom. His anger towards his brother has turned into this wicked, um, this wicked action. When God comes, just like he did in Genesis 3, questioning where are you, or in this case, where is your brother, Cain shows no remorse. In fact, he almost mocks the situation. When God asks him, where is your brother? He responds with, am I my brother's keeper? Which is a lot closer rendered or, or better rendered. You know, am I a shepherd of the shepherd? Am I making light of the situation? It's from his hand, from this man Abel, comes the first, the first bodily death in all of human history. And when you consider all the details, you can see how Abel's sin is complete and absolute comprehensive sin in every way possible. Not only does he commit an act of violence against, against another person, but he also transgresses the direct word of God. This is, not, this is something that, that God told him um, or, or warned him against, and he specifically and deliberately disobeys and, and, and chooses to do something contrary to what God has spoken. What his deed does for us then, ultimately, is it shows us his complete lack of regard for God and his severe lack of faith, even before this act was committed. So there's an important idea running um, through the beginning of this story here, and that's Cain's lack of faith is not just a result of God's preference for Abel's act, uh, um, sacrifice, that Cain, that Cain doesn't just disregard the Lord after, after he comes and prefers Abel's sacrifice, but there was something about something working in the sacrifices, in the life of Cain, 
that should have warned us about him beforehand. You know, why did God prefer Abel's sacrifice uh, in the first place? Well, some have suggested all kinds of, there's all kinds of suggested things. Some may, some may say, well, God just likes shepherds more than he likes gardeners. I mean, like, uh, which I don't think is the case. No, the details of Abel's sacrifice lend us to believe that that there's a sincerity, that there's a, that there's a faith behind what Abel is offering up opposed to Cain's. Abel, it says, he offers up the first born, what are the first fruits of his flock. He says that he brought of the first born of the flock and of their fat portions, which if you go through the law and you see how you see how sacrifices are made, the fatty parts of the animal are regarded as the choicest or the best. You burn those so that they rise like an aroma to God. And so what happens here is that Abel gave a sincere, honest offering of the best of his flock expressing a sincere and true faith. And those details are lacking from the sacrifice of Cain. We can deduce pretty clearly, and the Bible testifies to this elsewhere, that there was a faith Abel had in possession that Cain did not have. And it's for that reason that God regarded Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. In Hebrews 11, in the chapter on the Hall of Faith, when the author of Hebrews is commenting on Abel particularly, um, this is what he says in regards to his sacrifice. He says in verse 4, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And it was through his faith, so the faith of Abel, that though he died, he still speaks. That sacrifice was one given in sincerity and truth, offering up of, of the best that he had to God as a demonstration of faith. And very clearly, before even this whole episode, Cain uh, was lacking in that, type, in that type of faith. Well, if that's the case, then I want us to continue and see in point number two, uh, curses and conflict, both curses and conflict. When Cain disobeys and God comes to him, as we mentioned, there's a lot of echoes of Genesis chapter 3. A lot of similar things happening um, regarding the, the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden and then what's going on here. Just as then, um, I mean very clearly, Cain disregard or, or Cain hears the voice, in, in this case the voice of God, and he disregards what God says, goes into sin, then God comes again, and he brings with him judgment, words to Cain. And these words, in this case, just like then, contain with them both, both great curse, consequences, but then there's also these odd silver linings that are there towards the second half of the, of the speech as well. We hear this great curse, the words of this great curse, for us in verses 10 and 11. God comes, he says, the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the ground. Uh, he knows what's happened. It's unjust sling. And then in verse 11, we hear a bit of a repetition that, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood and your hand. What's unique about this particular one is that 
Previously, according to the curse under Adam, the ground is cursed. And yet here now, mankind is cursed as well in this distinct way. Cursed are you, or now you are cursed from the ground. And part of that, part of what that means is given for us in verse 12. It says, not only when you work of it, it shall no longer yield you its strength, which was the case beforehand with Adam as well, but now you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now, in this new and fresh way, this terrible and terrifying way, Cain is now being ushered away from God's presence, that Cain is being, is being cut off from the Lord God and quite literally from, from the rest of his family as well, from, where, from this place that they find themselves dwelling. He's to go about as a fugitive. He's one who's going to bear a mark of a murderer, that he's going to be separated, torn asunder, split off from the rest of the growing humanity found in Adam and Eve. He's forfeited his place among the offspring of Eve, in other words. He is cut off from the rest of the children of men. And in essence, what's going on here is that his consequence is that he now has no, he now uh, no longer can participate in the family hope of a redeemer, that he cannot participate any longer in faith in a champion who's going to crush the serpent's head. He's joined another team. His actions have proven what was true about him in his heart, that he doesn't belong to this family, that he has another father who we will find out is the devil. Cain has been distinct from Abel even before the murder. The possession of faith being the key distinguishing mark between the two brothers. And while they are both offspring, sons of Eve in the flesh in one sense, these two brothers represent a radical divergence of people, two separate allegiances, two lines of humanity that are going to uh, unfold throughout the rest of Genesis. This passage helps us see clearer regarding Genesis 3.15, as I mentioned, because when God says that there's going to be enmity between, he's speaking to the serpent, you and the woman, between your offspring serpent and her offspring, God is not talking about a, a enmity between mere snakes and humans. He's talking about a enmity between a certain type of humanity, one line of humanity that begins here we see with Cain. And another line of, man, of, of humanity that Cain has attempted to snuff out through the killing of his brother Abel. That there are two kinds of people. Those who belong to their father, the devil, and those who are the people of promise. The seed or the offspring, the chosen people from, from Eve. This is a bit of a shock and a twist. That, these, that those words in Genesis 3 are describing two lines of people, two groups of humanity. We'll see how that unfolds, but first let's just consider the rest of God's speech as he goes on. Uh, he still continues, even for this line, even for this man Cain, this murderer, God will continue, just like with Adam, to give some silver linings, to give like some caveats to the punishments that he's, that he's laying out for him. God does not remove in its fullest sense, the reality that Cain has been made in his own image and that he's been made to do things um, like all humanity. And so God, in his grace, 
he preserves Cain. He preserves his humanity, as we'll see in this, in the rest of this text. Now he doesn't preserve. He doesn't. Uh, uh, he's not gracious towards him in regards to salvation. But there is this preserving quality for the for the sake of Cain and, and all humans that are, that's at work here. You look at verse fourteen, as God is speaking. Cain brings this complaint. Well, first he says in 13, my punishment is greater than I can bear. And what is he afraid of? Well, he's afraid of verse 14, that you've driven me away today from the ground. From your face thou shalt be hidden. So he's, that's one terrible thing. He's cut off from God and from, and from his people. But he's also worried um, that some are going to say, or that some are going to see him and they're going to try to seek vengeance. And they're going to try to kill Cain because of what he's done. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me, is what Cain is concerned about. Um, he's, he's concerned that he's going to run into, in the course of time, outlaws, those who know about his deeds. Uh, this would obviously be an ever-expanding family from the first parents that would be aware of what he's done and seek to destroy him and kill him. But God, in his kindness, um, turns to mercy, in one of the more confusing sections of Scripture, God goes on to say this. He tells him, no, that's not going to happen. Um, we're not going to allow for vengeance to be taken against you. Um, that he's already been punished. He's been cut off. And in this particular case, God has seen fit that that is the due punishment for his murder of his brother. And he will not allow uh, double jeopardy. He will not allow Cain to be punished twice for the same for the same mistake. And so what he says is that if anyone does seek to kill you, then my vengeance, the vengeance of the Lord, is going to be, you know, seven times worse than what they can than what they've done to you. That God places like a prohibition against against any outlaws going and taking the life of Cain. What he does, in essence, um, it also says here that he puts a mark on Cain so that people will know, uh, will know who he is and, and, and not, not attack him. Now, there's been a lot of, obviously, lots of different opinions on what this mark is. It's not, it's, it's not that confusing, particularly if you don't consider this like a um, too much or too, too literally. Is that What's going on here is that he's talking about a, that God is going to mark the consciences and give people an awareness um, of what is just and what is right. That'll give him, in essence, a, a bit of a law written on the heart, as it were, of what is just retribution and what isn't, what God requires. God will make it known to humanity that it is not okay to attack Cain, and he's establishing in these verses a, a just and civil order, a lawful way for people to go forth from there and to live out into the world. We get here in these verses early promises or, or early revelation, not promises, early revelation that God is going to restrain men from how evil they could possibly and potentially be. Whom he's going to restrain sin. He's going to preserve Cain so that he can continue to live out his days. And he's going to even allow Cain to image God huh? in a similar way to the way in which he was designed. That humanity is not is not taken away from Cain. He's still made in God's image. All those things spoken about him, his name, 
uh, what he was skilled at, his vocation. All those things stay the same, except they're directed towards different ends now. He and his line of people in a diminished way are going to continue the intended work for all of mankind. They're going to subdue the earth. They're going to take dominion. They're going to fill the earth. And yet the difference between them and originally with Adam is that even as they work and even as they build and as they uh, create culture, that humanity, that all those things will not for any human achieve eternity. That all of their efforts will only have a limited good. They're not going to build the city of God. They're only able to see the fruit of their labor in a limited sense in this world. But nevertheless, they will continue as humans and do what humans do. Cain will still be fruitful and multiply. So what is the first thing he, uh, he does? After he's kicked out, he takes himself a wife, and then they bear children. He is, uh, he is going out into the world. He's filling and multiplying, being fruitful. His subduing of the earth continues. And his work truly does lead to earthbound prosperity for all of humanity. What starts to happen is that he bears a son and he names, and, and then after that, he builds a city and he names a city after, after his son. Other of his descendants will do other amazing things as well. In verse 21, or, or in verse 20 and 20, 20 and 21, uh, we see the record of, of Adah who bore Jabal, or yeah, Jabal, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and Jubal was the father of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. So from this early humanity, we see the father of those who bring forth music into the world, who, who cultivate and craft culture and, and art. Also later in verse 22, uh, we see how Tubal-Cain forges instruments of bronze and iron. And it's ambiguous there because we, we are to think of both instruments for agriculture and instruments of war, swords and weaponry and shields. That mankind is still developing the city, but the city that they are building only has earthbound, or should only have earthbound aspirations. Cain's line continues, and mankind takes dominion over the earth, and they build a city of man, and they establish earthbound human rule on the earth. And in many ways, we can look at that and say that that work is good and affirm it and see how it continues today. It's not ultimate good. They're not capable of building the city of God. They're not going to ascend the heavens. Later in our story, they're going to try to do just that, uh, build a tower. We might have heard of it, that, that they're going to try to then reestablish the kingdom on earth. It's not going to go well for them. But the reality is that there's no more creation of holy space upon the earth through the works of earthly hands. But they do build, but they do build a common space. And it's a good space. This is the beginning of what we call common grace, um, that these are good things that these people are doing. And while God remained Cain from his own presence, from the promise of redemption, he didn't strip him once again of all of his gifts. It didn't strip him of his humanity. And this is a great cause to give thanks, that God does restrain evil and he prevents people from being as bad as they could. And he allows us and enables us all to contribute to some good in a limited sense, civic good. 
And when you think about the grand story of Genesis and redemption, it is also good that this development starts to take place because the more stable the world is, the more things operate in a just way, the more uh, stability there is for life, well, that's going to be essential for another group of people, the second, the second group of people, the offspring of the woman. It's going to allow a platform for them to live and to flourish. So the last thing I want us to see is here, point number three, the two ways of two people. The passage here concludes in verse 25 with the return to Adam and Eve. Abel is lost to them, um, and yet there's a new man appointed birthed by Eve, um, to continue the hope in their line. That even though Cain and the devil tried to cut that line short, another son of promise is born so that people can endure. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, she said, for Cain has killed him, and this son is named Seth. The offspring, the line of the woman, the people of promise, they will continue. Mm-hmm. And quite clearly, it is from this line that one day will lead to the Christ that is going to crush the head of the serpent and redeem and save all of, all of his people. In a sense, it makes Cain, their enemy, working to establish culture and to establish stable, stable civil life, in many ways, is going to provide and allow for uh, God's people to endure, uh, to persevere, to survive, and to flourish. Turning things on their heads or expectations on their, on their heads. What's distinct about this people, though, we heard a lot of details about what marks Cain's people. Like they're, they're craftsmen, they subdue the earth, they build weapons, they make music. They, they sound, it sounds like the fun group to be a part of and the, and the cool place where things are happening. There's only one marking characteristic of this second group. There's only one thing that sets them apart and that identifies them. And it's found in verse 26. That at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This people will possess what Cain lacked from the beginning, but what Abel had in spades. This is how this people is marked. This people is marked because they are the people of faith, those who call upon the name of of the Lord. And in contrast to those who are trying to build this city upon the earth, the city of man, where they're, where they're seeking to subdue it, these people recognize that the glory of the eternal city that was lost in the fall can only now be received again by faith. That you have to trust in the Lord so that he can deliver that which was lost. This is what Abel died for, and this is true of every saint who belongs to this family, that we wait expectantly uh, with, our, with our hands open, trusting that God is going, to, is going to deliver on his promises, and we will receive um, that heavenly future, that glorious future. This is exactly the way in which Hebrews 11 then speaks about Abel and how we are to understand his expectations. He says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, um, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, um, if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it was, they deserve a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. 
He's delivering to us that city, eternal life, heavenly Jerusalem, and our expectant waiting for it, our faith that God will deliver it through the work of his son. That is what has set God's people apart throughout all of history and continues to set us apart now. Even all the earth. Um, and what's remarkable, when, when, when you consider the way in which the book of Genesis, those that are going to work for the establishment of a earthly city, even all of humanity's good works towards that end are confounded by sin huh. and filled with sin and filled with problems from the beginning. There's, there's, a, there's one part that we didn't make mention of. I'll make mention of it now in verse 23. If you look at 23 and 24, we see this guy Lamech who has two wives. That's not a good sign. Um, and he boasts. He makes, he makes a boast. So even as humanity, God's being gracious. They're establishing you know, city and culture on the earth. This guy makes a boast. What does he boast about to his two wives? He says, I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. So he's, he's bragging over the fact that he killed someone, um, even though the man didn't deserve it. He's bragging, and then the next line, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. He's taunting God. He's just boasting in the fact that he has acted unjustly, uh, and what is God going to do about it? If Cain's punishment is, 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 a, is you know, sevenfold and mine is 77, but God can't touch me. He's a man who, even in all of, in all of the establishment of a glorious earthbound city here, humanity is still out of whack, and they're just going to get more out of whack by the time we get to, uh, to the time and the days of Noah. That even though they're doing good things, they're still imaging God in one sense. All those works are tainted by their fallen nature and by sin and what amounts to hatred for their brothers. That what's going to mark this people, this group of people, the, off, the, 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 the offspring of the serpent is a clear hatred for one another and a disregard for brother in the way that Cain disregarded his brother. But what will mark the other people, huh. the people of the, of the woman, is a love for brother as we read from 1 John chapter 3. God's people, the people of promise, those who belong to the true offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are those people who ought to be marked by love, by hope, great faith and anticipation for the days ahead, and gratefulness for what God has already done through his son, Jesus Christ. That through him, uh, and through his work, we have already received the deposit of what is promised for us in the future, heavenly Mount Zion. May we trust in the blood of Christ more than the blood of Abel and not be like Cain in his obstinance toward God, his disregard for God's word, the violence that he commits against brother and the hatred that he bears for the brethren. May we cling to God's word, heed his instruction, trust in his promise and have patience that he will work all things to, for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And may we walk in the way in which our Lord has prescribed, that we, be, that we be people who walk by faith, not in doubt, in love, not envious hatred for one another and for humanity. We cling to 
cling to Christ in these days in the hopes that he would preserve us and keep us and sustain us and by the work of his spirit that only he can provide for all of us. But we trust in that, in that message this morning.